We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Ed Webinar, where we will be learning about the transformative power of mindfulness in education. Penguin Random House Education and Alliant International University have partnered to bring authors and educational leaders together for a webinar focused on providing expertise, guidance, and resources to educators and those working in the field of education seeking to amplify their impacts. The webinar today will provide you with resources to empower yourself and others. I'd like to put an emphasis on yourself. Today's panel discussion will be grounded in research and will focus on the book, Let Your Light Shine. Let's review some setup items before we begin with our purposeful talk with our author and our experts in the field. Also, please do stay tuned because there will be a QR code at the end of our webinar for a discount on a copy of the book, Let Your Light Shine. Now we are going to get ready to meet our discussion panel, our speakers um, that will help us with our purposeful talk today. First, we have one of our authors of Let Your Light Shine, Ali Smith. Ali, will you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me today. And it's uh, great to see all of you all attending uh, virtually. Uh, my name is Ali Smith. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I grew up with uh, yoga in my household. Uh, those seeds were planted early and uh, it clearly stuck with me because uh, the Holistic Life Foundation uh, was what I started out of college. Um, a nonprofit based in Baltimore, uh, doing work, a lot of work in Baltimore, but also around the country and around the world, uh, bringing yoga and mindfulness in a very trauma-informed and trauma-responsive way uh, to schools, to communities, to adults, to seniors, um, in a way that kind of empowers them to be able to use the practice in their own lives and heal themselves up. Thank you, Ali. We're looking forward to, to hearing more. Dr. Carlton Parks, thank you for joining us. Would you please share? Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Carlton Parks, and I'm a lifespan developmentalist by training. Uh, and my goal has always been to be able to assist ethnically and culturally diverse students become practitioners in the field, working with children, adolescents, and their families. And I had a special interest in helping uh, my students work effectively with ethnic, ethnic and culturally diverse children, adolescents, and their families. So that's been my career goal, and that's what I have spent my time doing. Thank you, Dr. Parks. We look forward to hearing more. Dr. Laura Mueller, will you please share? Hello. Thank you for inviting me as well to be a part of this panel. I, unlike Ali, uh, had never heard of mindfulness until I was at a school psychology conference in 2005. Um, but as soon as I was exposed to it at that conference, I was hooked immediately by the research that was already in place at that point, and the research is just growing as to the scientific basis uh, for the way mindfulness, meditation, and yoga uh, can bring a calm state of mind. I've enjoyed being uh, affiliated with Alliance since 2005. I was a student there and have been uh, working as an adjunct professor since 2008 and recently came on 
as the Interim Program Director at Alliant. Thank you, Dr. Mueller. We look forward to, to hearing more as we go through the next few minutes. Um, hi, everyone. Again, I am uh, Christy Pruitt. I am the Dean for the California School of Education with Alliant International University. I have over 29 years in education at the K-12 and higher education level at the private, public, and charter sectors, um, also with profit and nonprofit um, institutions or, and experience. Thank you, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, let's do get started. We're very excited about our purposeful talk. We'll go ahead and close out the screen so that we can see everyone very, very well. Ali, I'm going to start with you, please. Uh, can you briefly share your experience with mindfulness and yoga and what inspired you to collaborate and write in the writing of Let Your Light Shine? Sure. So like I said, I grew up with yoga in my home. Um, I would like to say I chose to meditate, but my dad was a coach and he was in the meditation. So he forcefully pushed my brother and I into meditation. Uh, so every single morning before school, it was uh, Scooby-Doo, Woody Woodpecker um, right before, right after meditation and then off to school. Uh, so it was something that was around in my house. Uh, my dad was into Hatha yoga. Um, so we'd walk downstairs for Saturday morning cartoons and he'd be in a headstand in the middle of the living room. Just which seemed like for hours, but uh, ask him about it. He said the most he ever did it for was like 10 minutes. But, you know, as a kid, everything seems a lot longer. Um, so we got out of our practice when our parents got divorced. Um, and then finishing up college, my brother and I uh, met Andy Gonzalez, the other author of the book. And, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out what we we're going to do with our lives. And, um, you know, we weren't really sure. We were kind of struggling for answers, trying to figure out what we were going to do, because we figured there had to be something more than just, you know, uh, get a degree, get a job, get married, have some kids, retire and die. There had to be something more to this human experience. And, uh, you know, we were searching for answers. Uh, we started reading tons of books, but we had more questions than answers. Uh, but I know we saw some places where they were talking about the answers were within. And but you I mean, that seemed very. Um, I don't know, it just it seemed it, it didn't really make any sense to us because there were like how we're we going to get these answers from within. Like we've been studying all these years, we reading and none of these answers were coming. Uh, so our godfather, me and Amon's godfather, was someone that got into yoga in the uh, early 60s and never ever got out of it. He was the one that actually got our dad into the practice. Um, and, you know, we started talking to him and, and we, we we had an interest. And, uh, you know, we, we wanted to learn from him and he just had two stipulations. Uh, one was that we had to agree to teach as many people as possible. And two, um, you know, that we had to show up at his house the next morning at 4 a.m., uh, and we did. We showed. We actually were there before 4 a.m. We were there at like 3.55, knocking on his door. There were no lights on. And, uh, you know, we um, he walked out, and our, our journey began. And uh, he, he, I think the way that he taught us informed the way that we actually teach. Because uh, one, one of the other things he said was he didn't want to teach students. He wanted to teach teachers. And I think that like that's the basis behind the way that we teach. Uh, we use a reciprocal teaching model where the kids come in the front to lead. So, like if one of you came to visit one of our programs, it will be nothing to see like a kindergarten kid leading a room of 50 people through a breath exercise or movement, a mindfulness practice or meditation. Um, I think we got our first opportunity teaching a group of 15 fifth grade boys. Um, we act, the, the principal actually approached us about coaching football. Um, because she had these 15 really problematic students. Uh, we, we mulled over it and then we went back to her on Monday and said, can we do an after school yoga program? And this was March of 2002. Um, you know, and uh, there weren't really in, many in-school mindfulness or yoga programs going on, particularly not in West Baltimore. 
uh, definitely not in West Baltimore. And, uh, you know, we had great results. Um, and we started the Holistic Life Foundation in March of actually in December of 2001. Um, and then things grew from there. We wanted to figure out how to do um, school based interventions and get it out into the community. And, uh, you know, we're mostly known for our work with kids, uh, but we do work with seniors, uh, senior centers we work in. We work in with adults in drug treatment centers, uh, mental crisis facilities, homeless shelters, um, in detention. Um, and we do a lot of work with teachers. Um, I'd say most of our work after the work with students is with teachers. And uh, whether that's K through 12 or in uh, colleges and universities. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's pretty much the yoga. I think the, the book came from um, a few things. Um, one, we wanted to tell the story of, like, how we got into these practices and the people that came before us, like my mom, my dad, and our teacher, and what got them into the practice. Um, I think we have some great stories from the people that we've worked with. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a lot of voices in there, and it's really good to capture them all and just share their experiences and their stories and how the practices change them. Um, and also wanted to give people some practical tools, because I think that's one of my favorite things about the book are the practical tools that are in there to help you. It's called Let Your Light Shine. So it's about you empowering yourself and letting your skills and your universal gifts shine. Um, and we give you some practical tools for that. And uh, also there's uh, one of my favorite sections is the section on how to show up in underserved communities and, and teach. Uh, because a lot of people are very well intentioned, um, but, you know, they, they come from a uh, you know, just a lack of experience in working with underserved communities, but a big heart. And we want to be able to have them have the best experience uh, for themselves and the people that they're serving. So there was a lot. And the book was not, and it's a lot of fun too. Uh, there's a lot of fun okay. stories in there. So we want to um, want to entertain people as well. I, I will I will reiterate that. Um, thank you for giving us that snapshot. And yes, throughout the book, um, you you continuously bring it back to your to, to, to childhood experiences or to your family. And that certainly makes it relatable um, and really resonate with, with a lot of us. Um, speaking of that, Dr. Parks, I understand that as you read the book, it resonated with you and that you grew up near Baltimore during segregation. Can you provide an example of your personal experience and how that relates to the content within the book, Let Your Light Shine? Definitely, definitely. I, it was very true. As I began reading the book, it was almost like snapshot memories came back to me because I'm a child of segregation. So I was born in a segregated hospital, went to segregated schools, and spent my first 15 years of my life in Washington, D.C., which is 30 miles away. I did visit Baltimore every now and then, but I always, when I talk to people about that, I always visited the segregated part of, Bal of Baltimore because my life was a life of segregation. There were places I could go. There were places I couldn't go. Um, so that was a, a, a part of who I was and a part of my identity as far as my authentic self, who I was. I began to realize those realities. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, at age five, I remember as a child watching television and watching television commercials. And during the spring and the summer, uh, we repeatedly had this commercial about Glen Echo Amusement Park. And I was age five watching this, and I wanted to go on the roller coaster. There was a big roller coaster at the amusement park. And I went and told my mother, okay, let's go. I'm five. Let's go. Let's. I want to try this roller coaster. And, and my mother had to have that conversation that all ethnic minority mothers have with children, where she sat down and said, "I'm." And this is the late 50s. 
I'm not really sure that you can go on this roller coaster or attend this amusement park. And so that we had to really sort of think about, you know, let's wait a little while, but that's not going to be something you can do right now. If we move forward five years, I was in a, a summer day camp with, again, almost 100% minority boys, ethnic boys, African-Americans. And I began discussing this issue and it turned out that they had the same experience I had. What do I mean by that? They had seen the Glen Echo commercial. They knew all about it. And they also felt that they needed, uh, they had that desire to go to and attend. And what we did was we talked that staff, the, uh, the staff of the summer day camp to make a field trip. And guess where the field trip was? The field trip was to Glen Echo. And we decided as a group, we were empowered as a collective to get together and go and have that experience. Uh, the, the camp staff was not wild about this idea at all. Not at all. Didn't think it was a great idea, but said, okay, let's go. Let's have this experience. I hope you don't think it's going to be warm and fuzzy because it won't be, uh, but we'll, we'll let you go. And it was a wonderful experience because it was a collective getting together with peer support to do something that, that empowered our, our sense of self, our authentic self. They made us feel that we were worthy and had every right to be at that amusement park as everyone else. And we had a right to enjoy that. Uh, roller coaster ride, uh, and and reason why it pops my it was a snapshot memory that popped in my mind was because as I was thinking about it, you know, I'll, to a large extent, the meditation, the yoga, and the mindfulness are how do how do kids and adolescents and adults deal with those kinds of ambiguous situations where they need to deal with issues of self-regulation and have to ask themselves, how do you cope with that? Because I could have coped with the whole notion of that commercial in a lot of different ways, but in some ways, you know, it's having the right strategies to know what to do when that count, those kinds of experiences pop up and you have to cope with them one way or another. Ollie, I, I, I appreciated that within your book, you so thoroughly address this piece and you also speak directly to white people and tell them what, what they should do and how they can serve um, the community in a um, authentic way. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so I think segregation, uh, like Carlton said, this was like a big part of my parents' um, existence. Um, I think they both experienced it in different ways. Um, and, and that's, 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 that's talked about in the book, the way they each of them experienced and, and what they thought about desegregation. Um, but, you know, our parents very intentionally sent me and my brother to a friend's school of Baltimore, a private Quaker school that was totally different from our neighborhood school, our neighbor, Baltimore. Uh, last time I looked, it was the second most segregated city behind Milwaukee. Um, so like, you know, our, ver our, our neighborhood school was very homogenous. Um, friend's school of Baltimore was a melting pot, a mixing pot of all different types of cultures. And they wanted us to be able to interact with all different types of people. Um, I think getting into yoga um, and the mindfulness world, um, my brother and myself and Andy don't look like, or particularly in the beginning, didn't look like anyone else that were doing the practices. Um, mindfulness was mostly older white men and yoga was mostly older white women. And that's just the way that it was. And uh, but I think in, in our programs, most of our early volunteers were white people that wanted to come and they wanted to help um, friends from high school, people we met at retreat centers. And the question always came up of 
Um, I feel like mostly it was, hi, I'm a white woman. I'm very well-intentioned. I want to go work in the community, but I don't know if they'll accept me for the way that, for, for, for what I am and who I am. And, uh, you know, and, and so we wanted to give some tools. That's a question that, that came up a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Parks, for sharing that memory. And thank you, Dr. Mueller, for that follow-up question. That was that was quite insightful and, and good information. Um, Ali, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, you another question. Ali, you shared a powerful story about the difference that yoga and meditation made for, for Ramon um, in Chapter 6. Can you share that story with us today? I can give you even more than that story. So Ramon's a, a kid that was from where me and my brother are from, like standing on the porch where we grew up on. We could see Ramon's house like on the street that was perpendicular to our street. Um, and, you know, he was one of the kids, him and he, him and these two kids uh, named Tay. There was a uh, Bugad Tay and, uh, and, uh, and white t-shirt Tay. There were two different days, and the three of them started a gang of kids in our neighborhood that were terrorizing everybody. Um, at one point, they had slashed all four of Andy's tires on his car. Um, they were breaking windows. Uh, they broke two at Oppen's house and one at my house. Uh, and these were kids were like second, third, fourth graders. Like they weren't like big kids; they were little kids. Um, and Oppen approached them one day, my brother and one of the co-authors, and was like, "Hey, um, can you guys, you guys want to go to the YMCA? And you guys want to play some basketball and swim?" and and um, go on field trips, and they were they were like, yeah, heck yeah, we don't have anything to do. Uh, he never told them about the yoga, so they were kind of weirded out. We went up to the dance studio and started rolling out the mats and bending and stretching and breathing and meditating, but they were into it. Um, Ramon um, took to the practice more than anyone else that was in that group, um, and the crazy thing is that you can tell by his life outcomes. Um, most of the people, most of the kids from that group, um, I'd say – at least like 60% of them are either have, have done time or are doing time for violent crimes, whether that's um, handgun charges, uh, murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, things along those lines. Uh, but he kept his nose clean. And he, if you talk to him to this day, um, he'll, he'll equate it to his practice. Um, Ramon's someone that I text uh, daily, um, sometimes several times a day. Um, he was a kid that at first, uh, was a very um, he was an angry kid, but you could see like he would try to smile it off, and you, you but you could tell when someone has is harboring a deep pain and deep anger. Um, but you know he was still pretty happy most of the time. He was a kid that wouldn't say the word love. He thought love was a bad word. Um, but now um, when he calls me and we talk, he's one of those kids that will um, he'll always end with "I love you" at the end of the call, and if he forgets, he will literally call me back and be like. Oh, I forgot to tell you that I love you. And then he'll hang up the phone. Um, I think one of his big breakthroughs, um, his uh, his father was found murdered in the trunk of a car. Um, and I don't think it's something that he ever really dealt with or, or ever really. Um, I think, think it's something he pushed really far down and he tried to hide from. Uh, we were actually at the Omega Institute doing a meditation, um, a really deep meditation with someone that had done some yoga with my mom, my dad and our teacher. And, um, you know, like he came out of it. And he was just like bawling, like he was crying. He was like, you know, this is the first time in my life I've actually come to grips with the fact that my father had passed and that I needed to say goodbye to him. And I was holding on to all this pain. And it was funny how much of a change he made from that point uh, moving forward. Uh, he still teaches the force to this day. Um, he teaches in drug treatment and homeless shelters all over Baltimore City. He's the father of two sets of twins. 
um, which at, at one point he had two sets of twins under the age of three, which is, I, I mean, he deserves some type of, him and, his, him and his wife deserve some type of parenting awards for that. But um, the practice literally uh, saved his life. And if he was on here, he would tell you the same thing. Like through all the chaos of living in one of the most violent neighborhoods um, in, in the world at one point, um, he's, he sustained himself. Um, and when there was chaos and violence and all these things around him, uh, he had a place of inner peace that he could always retreat to. And he used that to his advantage uh, to stay centered and be able to f- move through life. And it wasn't like he cut everyone off around them. Uh, he's still friends with every single person. Um, they Like when he's around them, he'll throw them on the phone uh, and to talk to us. So it's like he didn't like just separate himself from the situation. I think he had it. I think he had enough of a center, enough of a base and was grounded enough to know what he wanted out of life. And um, he's very, very good about it. Wasn't, wasn't something he was good about early, but he's really good about, um, uh, I'd say, responding instead of reacting to things. Like he's not as impulsive as he was when he was a little kid. Um, he's just able to kind of take that pause and then move forward in the way that's best for him and his family. Thank you. You know, you, you you mentioned quite a few emotions in that story. You talked about pain, you talked about trauma, and then you also talked about him having maybe some coping skills. Uh, in your book, you spoke of chronic stress, especially related to poverty. Accumulated fears and anxiety lead to a brain that responds with a flight or fight um, response um, to real or perceived danger due to Uh, neuronal pathways created by chronic stress. Can you explain how yoga and meditation help to endure or improve these conditions? And, and certainly you were, you were just explaining that a little bit with um, Ramon, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, So I think there's a lot that, that yoga, meditation, breath work and mindfulness do to help people heal from that. Um, You know, uh, I think when, when we first got into this, this work, um, we just thought well, schools are filled with bad kids. Like these kids have terrible behavior issues. Like they're just bad. There's some bad kids out there. Um, but then once we started to get to know them, we saw that there was something else going on. There was these walls that they had built up because of life experiences that they had. And so, so there was something else going on. And no one was using the word trauma at that point. Like in like, at least no one that we knew was using the word trauma in like the early 2000s. Like it just wasn't something that we had heard of. But we saw that there was something else going on with these students. Um, and, you know, we, we worked through building relationships with them, um, building that trust, empowering them, um, teaching the practice in a way that worked for their struggles. Um, and it was and it was cool to see them start to heal themselves up. I think now with the um, with the vocabulary of all the re- work that's been done around trauma, um, I think seeing that they were stuck in sympathetic dominance, they were stuck in that fight or flight mode, which, you know, like sympathetic dominance can save your life at some points. But if you're stuck there. It's going to slowly, slowly start to kill you. Um, that hyperactive amygdala, um, the fact that your um, vagus nerve isn't functioning properly, that your threat perception is totally off and you live in a state of fear. Uh, proprioceptive input, um, you know, like that, that message from the outside world to your body, um, through your skin, through your muscles. Like if you've been traumatized enough, uh, that message is fear constantly being sent to your mind from the outside world. And that is a, a miserable way to live. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's not a good existence. Uh, but I think the beautiful thing about all these contemplative practices are uh, the breath definitely helps you to float between sympathetic and parasympathetic dominance. So like whenever you do get into that heightened state, you can use your breath to slow yourself back down and get back to that rest state. 
Um, the movement, we always start with movement um, because you got to be able to make the body safe before you can start to work on the mind. And the beautiful thing about the, the, the yogic practice is like, you know, when you're in poses and you're doing the breath, you start to get those points of presence where you're not reliving that fearful moment or that trauma. Uh, you're like, wow, I actually do feel safe in my body right now. Then you have more and more and more of those moments. And then you notice like you actually feel safe in your body. And then you can start to move forward from there. Uh, there's a breath. Um, it's called the Ujjayi breath. Um, if you read a lot of yoga, practice yoga, uh, we call it the stress breath because we don't use um, Sanskrit terms in the schools. Uh, but that helps to heal up your vagus nerve, which helps to deal with your threat perception, the communication between your mind and body. So there's tons of practices uh, that we use um, that help the kids to heal themselves from that chronic stress, from that trauma, and help them to kind of neurologically and physiologically function the proper way. Thank you. Let, let's talk a little more about classrooms and um, and schools. You describe the meditation room that you create in, in school sites who are implementing um, the the room uh, the room implementing room appropriate appropriately. How does the room work, and how do you coach school sites through this? And I'd like to also, Dr. Mueller and Dr. Parks, um, have you uh, chime in on this as well, and maybe if you could think about how. You could see meditation rooms being used more within schools, um, maybe meditation spaces within classrooms, um, just ways that this these practices help uh, our students self-regulate and just providing safe places for our students. So, Ali, if you want to maybe start a little bit with, um, again, something in your book and then uh, Dr. Mueller and Dr. Parks, if you could also um, chime in, that would be great. Sure. So. Um the, the the program we're talking about is our Mindful Moment program. Um, there were all these viral videos that popped up on like Upworthy and Oprah Magazine about turning detention into meditation. Um, and that was our Mindful Moment program. Uh, we were challenged to come up with a school-wide intervention because uh, at that point we we're doing after-school programs and small groups of students. So we wanted to figure out a way to impact the entire school and be a resource to the entire school. So um, we came up with the idea of these Mindful Moment rooms. And the way the program breaks down is like we set up an oasis in the school um, aromatherapy, uh, salt crystals, plants, um, lamps, natural light, um, and meditation cushions all over the place uh, where the kids during times of crisis can refer, get referred by a teacher or self-refer. Um, and we have two staff in the room. And, uh, you know, the first thing our staff does is listen. Um, a lot of a lot of mindful listening, a lot of mirroring, because uh, just to empower the kids, uh, we learned very early on when the kids were coming to the rooms with the referral slip from their teacher, like nine out of 10 times, the reason that they said they were in there was not the same reason that the teacher said that they were in there. So just us listening to the kids empowered them. Uh, we would do maybe 20 minutes of practice and then the kids would go back to the classroom. Uh, we were trying to change the situation from punitive to empowering uh, where the kids are used to getting punished for every single thing that goes on. And then we wanted to show them that they were actually in control. Like, okay, I may have made a mistake because of, uh, whatever, a negative interaction with a teacher, with a student, because of the trauma I'm dealing with with home, uh, some secondary trauma I'm dealing with for being in my neighborhood, whatever's going on. But instead of like getting detention or suspension or in-school suspension or expelled, I can go to this room for, say, 20 minutes, work on these practices and then go back to class. Um, I think one of the a couple cool things about the program, uh, one is that the referral numbers to the room always drop throughout the school year. Uh, at the beginning of the year, it's nothing for a school to see maybe 100 kids in a day, like at a bigger school. But by the end of the year, 
you might see two or three kids in a day because the kids learn how to regulate on their own. Like they're sitting in the classroom and they have an interaction. Like I need to go to the mindful moment room in September, but by May they're like, all right, okay. I feel myself drifting away from center. I know these skills. I can just pull myself back and stay in the classroom. So a lot less kids. So we actually go in and we do push-ins with the teachers, um, like during their planning periods to work on their burnout, secondary trauma, their stress level. Um, we work with the administrators in the school uh, to do meditation and breath work with them. Uh, so it's, it's actually a school-wide initiative. It's the kids, it's the teachers, it's the administrators. Um, yeah, and we make sure it's a resource to the school. We do a lot of trainings uh, for people around the country to be able to facilitate this program. So we do like train the trainer models, uh, professional developments, so it's done the right way. And everywhere that the programs run with fidelity, uh, suspension numbers drop probably by around 75%. Um, to some of the schools, it's down to zero. And, and actually, everywhere it's run with fidelity, uh, they get rid of in-school suspension rooms because there's no need for them. So um, it's a program that works when it's done right. And uh, we've, we've actually, uh, you know, we've gotten really good at showing other people how to set up and, and run the rooms with fidelity. And the thing that's so amazing about it, on top of all your statistics, um, is it is also in line with legislation that asks us to put in place, right, positive behavioral interventions, multi-tiered systems of support. Um, so as administrators, uh, you can feel very confident that you are actually fulfilling uh, what you're being asked to do to have these positive interventions. And um, I think one thing that's been challenging, I was a behavior specialist for three years. and I was, you know, going in with the students that you're describing and trying to figure out what to do with a challenging student. And part of what led me to want to do um, at least a year of a mindfulness implementation at a school site is I want to, similar to you, right, have something positive that's happening that recognizes that when we see dysregulated students, it is a skill deficit, not a bad kid. Um, and everything about what you're describing um, allows us to not only respond to legal mandates that can be challenging to fulfill, but we're literally teaching the students in the school to self-regulate. And I promise on every site across every campus, that is the number one need um, for students who are having difficulty in any way, right? Re-regulating, dealing with the trauma that they've experienced. So we're not only... it's I really appreciate the way you describe it in your book. One of my most favorite examples um, was the school who implemented and deep into the implementation, a student went to the meditation room and no one was there. It was locked. And sorry, I'm stealing from Ali's book at this point. Um, and the student, instead of getting frustrated or anything, sat down in front of the door and did a meditation on his own right there outside the locked meditation room. And when this story was relayed, um, it wasn't just that the student was able to do that, but also everyone else just walked by him, knew what he was doing, didn't bother him. And the principal just had such an aha moment of the way school culture had changed as all of the students on the site were gaining better self-regulation and had those um, skills in place. Another thing you say in your book a lot that you haven't mentioned today is be a scientist. I think that's something we I had to emphasize. I am so amazed how early we're able to implement this because even in 2017, 
Um, when I had to meet with parents as a group. I had to meet with all the teachers as, the gr as a group before we started implementing to help them understand that I wasn't bringing in a religion, um, but something very science-based. So I think we can all feel confident um, with your research, with all the research that's been done. Sorry, Dr. Yeah. Parks. And another piece that I puzzle is that I was really impressed by, I mean, at one portion of, the book, of the, your book, you talked about the whole notion of removing the time out kinds of practices in, in classrooms. And I was sort of wondering about the whole notion of, you know, having that space in the classroom where, where students feel comfortable at a certain point when they feel like they need that help, they need to self-regulate, they could go to a spot in the classroom and do that kind of work. And then when they feel much better and they feel like they've got I better handle on everything. They can go back into the group interaction and do things, and that people feel comfortable about that, and that you you don't go you don't go to that spot just because you're being punished for something or you're going for a timeout. You can use it productively, and you have a toolkit that you can use to to help yourself self regulate, and so that that's an empowering experience. When you get, when you realize that you can do that and be successful about that and get rewards as a result of that. Yeah, I think that was one of the keys to the program was seeing it as not the room or the practices, not just for bad kids. You know what I mean, it had to be something that, that was a resource to everyone. So it took a lot of, um, it took a lot of uh, effort at first, but um, I think now we've got, we figured that part of it out. Um, and I think like also what you were saying about being a scientist was something that our teacher would always say to us, like consistently uh, from the day we started learning from him until the day he passed away, like he was always saying, you got to be a scientist, you got to be a scientist. Because like he would be like, you know, like I could tell you the benefits of these practices, but you wouldn't, I could be totally lying to you unless you actually did the science and, and worked on yourself and you were a scientist yourself. So um, I think that was the attitude we took towards it. And I think that was the attitude we, we teach with that and the reciprocal teaching are, um, you know, I feel like the way that we teach are the way that we were taught. And that was what he did for us. He made us teachers. He empowered us with the practice. Um, he made us be scientists and experiment on ourselves. And that's the way that we work with the young people, with the adults, um, with, with everyone that we work with. I love that. Another thing that you emphasized, too, that I hadn't emphasized as much, but I was re-looking at the results of the research that we did at that school site. And almost all the teachers reported that their own practice improved or that they adopted the practice. And that that is actually part of what changes school cultures as well and classroom culture. It's self-care, mm -hmm. right? But it is also an effective way to be able to be present in each moment in the classroom um, in a more calm, regulated state of mind. Uh, my confession is that I spoke often about mindfulness and the research but only started my own mindfulness practice in 2020. That's when I became a scientist to try it out myself. Um, so that's my true confession. I didn't start it as far back as you did. I want to ask a question because you talked in your book, you called it self-love. Uh, and isn't that true? You called it self-love. And I was thinking on some level, the whole notion of practitioners learning to take care of themselves and role modeling the appropriate behaviors so that kids can see that it's not just something for them, that teachers and other practitioners also yeah. can utilize and benefit from those same procedures and can grow as a result from it. And that, to me, I think that's an 
an extremely com important part of your book. There's a component of that where you talk about that that's, ne that's a necessary step in the process. Yeah, our teacher would always tell us that these practices aren't something that you do. They're something that you are. Like you have to be able to embody them for them to really work because it's easy. Um, actually, it's not easy. Most people want to get a curriculum and just teach from it um, when it comes to stuff like this or go do a quick little training and then they want to start implementing it. But um, it's easier to teach from a place of wisdom and experience than it is from a place of theory. And if you teach from a curriculum, it's theory. If you're teaching from your own self-experiments and, and like you were saying, Dr. Park, self-love, then you can start to, um, you know, it, it just like it, it, it just comes across better to the young people in the room. And if you're teaching adults, it doesn't matter who it is. And uh, I think a lot of people um, we were talking, I can't remember who we were talking to about this, but um, there were people talk about giving from your well and giving from your well mm -hmm. and like not giving from an empty well. But they were from, they told, they, they had a really good point. They were saying, um, keep your well so full that you're giving from the overflow. Like you're taking care of yourself that much. That there's an overflow you can give from, and you're not actually giving from the actual well. That's good. Thank you. You know, Dr. Um, Dr. Mueller, you mentioned briefly your research. So I'd like to ask you a question uh, about that. You completed a research study about implementing mindfulness practice with an entire elementary school site. How did you introduce the idea to your site? Were the teachers interested? Were they invested? And um, what advice would you give for a school site that maybe um, is interested in, in doing the same? Thank you. Um, it started, as I said um, earlier, I was a behavior specialist for my school district for three and a half years. And I wanted to not just be intervening, but providing proactive, positive practices that could teach skills to all students, not, it's a very applicable to everyone, um, not just students who are presenting with active uh, behavior problems. So uh, in that work, I had been speaking with a principal who happened to be someone who did yoga on the side. So, you know, it was someone who was open to the idea. And like I said, um, Ali, one of my, one of the most amazing things to me is what year you were able to introduce this. Um, because I still had a little bit of resistance in 2000 end of the 2016-17 uh, school year going into the 2017-18 school year. Um, I had a meeting with all the teachers and provided the science um, behind mindfulness and meditation um, and just gave them all an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, we discussed it and they all agreed that this would be something they would like to implement at their school site. Um, our district has uh, professional learning communities so the way, kind of the practical way we were able to implement is the teachers met as a group all year and kind of led it themselves, where we had meetings planning kind of what the lessons would be, what we would practice, um, and everything that we would do. And I went to those meetings, uh, but it was really teacher-led once we were digging into it. And most, again, most, it was by voluntary. We didn't force it on anyone. So there were a couple of classrooms that didn't implement but the majority of the school site, 90% of the school site implemented um, the practices. And I just got 
primarily positive feedback across the board. Um, we did interviews with students, interviews with teachers, interviews with parents and the principal at the end of the implementation. Um, one of my favorite stories was um, a TK student, so four years old, to Ollie's point that a five-year-old can lead a meditation practice. So this TK student, and we, we did use a curriculum, I have to admit, um, but the TK student was at home one day and the parent reported this. The parent was getting upset and angry at the student and the student, four years old, says, um, mom, I think you're in your amygdala right now. You should take some deep breaths. <laughs> so if a four-year-old can understand brain neurology and how an amygdala can be triggered by perceived danger, um, we know this is something that all of our students can grasp and implement. Uh, that was one of my favorite stories. There are many others, many teachers in the interview um, mentioned that they had either begun their own practice or increased their own practice. There were teachers who stated that it improved their relationships with their own children at home, not only their patients and their ability um, to work with students in the classroom. Um, it was just, uh, it was a wonderful experience and opportunity and just resonates with everything I read in Ollie's book in terms of these being scientific practices that help not only students, but teachers. Um, and I had, I said this to Ollie earlier um, when we were meeting to prepare that I love the part of emphasizing this is for administration, this is for teachers first. And before we can really be modeling these practices or teaching these practices effectively, we need to have our own practice first. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Mueller. And that is a great um, message leading into my last question. This will be the last question from me. And then we have a nice surprise. And then we'll have some Q&A from our listeners. Um, what advice, and this is for everyone on the panel, what advice would you give others who are interested in starting mindfulness or yoga for themselves, or if they're here wanting and listening, wanting to start a practice in their own classroom or in their school? And in about two minutes. Well, one thing I would say is that the book does a really excellent job. It's like, I think people need to realize it's really a workbook. It really is a workbook. And that workbook gives you opportunities chapter by chapter about the kinds of things you can begin learning to practice and learning to do. And I think that that is a place to start. And I would assume, you know, once you, you get a, a handle on that and you feel comfortable about what those practices are, and really it, it's, a, it's a wonderful workbook, and you can begin to expand from there and do other things. But I think it's a, it, what's wonderful about the book, it's a good place to start because it's well grounded on the practices of how to do these kinds of things as far as yoga, breathing, all those things. It's all there in the book. But also not just a boring workbook, amazing right, it stories, is. It is. amazing stories leading up to a workbook, right? <laughs> you all's answers are much better than the one that I was going to do. I do think well, it's always important when we're working within school districts to make sure that we are leveraging the community and the people who are going to be affected by what yeah. we're recommending. 
um, that we're being transparent with parents, that we're being um, transparent, again, with the science and the research behind it, um, just making sure that all that communication is happening. Um, again, in my experience, I had a whole parent meeting um, about what was going to happen, and we sent permission slips home, you know, all of those pieces to make sure that everyone's aware um, of what's happening and just getting that staff buy-in as well if anyone's thinking about, you know, working with an entire site. Well, I think we heard loudly and clearly uh, that the book is a is a certain certainly a wonderful resource. So thank you so much. This has been such a, a pleasure pleasure talking with you all. We have a, a really nice um, treat right now, um, Ali. We are going to ask if you would please to lead us in a three to five minute um, meditation simulation, please. Uh, this will be for everyone uh, joining us right now. Um, after this. Simulation, we will um, pick up with Q&A from our listeners. Uh, I would love to. Uh, so uh, I got a perfect three to five minute one. Um, I think most people uh, get out of uh, meditation practice because they can get their body still, but they can't get their mind still. And they feel like they're fighting with their thoughts and fighting with their mind the entire time. It becomes like there's something feel like they're wasting their time. Like, OK, I'm sitting here. I'm supposed to be getting relaxed. I'm supposed to get some stillness. But I'm fighting with my thoughts and trying to block them all out. So this is a short practice. Uh, it's actually the first practice my teacher taught me um, when I was getting back into meditation. Because uh, I did it as a kid, stopped, and there was probably like, I don't know, like 15, 17 years in between the, the my last meditation and when I started back up as a young adult. Uh, so everyone get in a nice, comfortable seated position uh, with your back, neck, and head aligned. Uh, not uncomfortably, but pretty comfortably. Uh, roll your shoulders back to make sure they're not uh, tense or kind of hunched up, just relax your shoulders, uh, check your jaw, make sure your jaw is nice and relaxed too, and I welcome you to close your eyes. Uh, we'll start with a couple deep breaths in and out through our noses all the way down to our belly, so let's inhale nice and deeply, filling our belly and our lungs, and exhale that breath all the way out, feel your lungs fall, push your belly in, back out through your nose, inhale deeply, filling your belly and your lungs. Exhale, feel your lungs fall, push your belly in. One more together, inhale, filling your belly and your lungs. Exhale, feel your lungs fall, push your belly in. Uh, now go ahead and relax your breath and let it flow on its own. Don't put any thought or any effort into the breath, just let it be. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring our awareness to our mind and very, very passively, like we're sitting back watching a movie or a TV show, we're just going to watch the thoughts that flow through our mind. We're going to be the witness. We're not going to take ownership of the thoughts. We're not going to judge the thoughts. We're just going to watch them. Right now, whatever thought's currently in your mind, watch that thought to its completion. And then when it ends, watch for the next thought to form.
Another thought does arise. See that thought without ownership or judgment. Watch it to its completion. You know when it ends. Watch for the next thought to form. And just keep repeating that process. As thoughts arise, you're just a witness. You see them without ownership or judgment. You watch them to their completion. And you watch for the next thought. Keep watching for the next thought. Everyone take a nice, full, long, slow, deep inhale. Feel your bell in your lungs. And go ahead and exhale that breath all the way out. And then go ahead and slowly, slowly open up your eyes. Um, just one quick thing about that practice. Um, when our teacher first taught us, I remember going to my teacher and being like, uh, Uncle Will, I broke the meditation. And he was like, what are you talking about? You broke the meditation. That doesn't even sound right. And he was like, well, I was like, well, I was watching my thoughts and the thought ended and I watched for the next thought. And there was just a blank space there. And then so in my mind, I'm thinking there should be a thought there. So I inserted a thought into that blank space and I watched that thought. And then when it got to the end and I watched the next thought, there was another blank space. And that didn't feel right, so I inserted another thought there. He was like, no, Ali, that's exactly what the practice is supposed to do. When you pay attention to your mind, you notice there's pauses in between your thoughts. Like your thoughts kind of go in waves. And at the bottom of every single wave, there's stillness after every single thought. And you can cultivate it, make it longer and longer and longer. Uh, but, you know, there, there is space there. You just have to know where to find it. And it's a great practice to add to your current meditation practice, or it can be a standalone practice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ali. That was very, very um, engaging and just uh, it, it was it was it was uh, wonderful to, to experience that, especially uh, with you leading it. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We are going to shift now. Um, panel, don't don't go anywhere. <laughs> we are going to now shift to some of the questions that came in through our um, attendees. And let me go ahead and facilitate those now. Let's go ahead and start with the first question. Can preschool teachers use some of these practices with preschool children? Uh, yes. Um, if working with younger students, uh, the movement is ideal because um, you're not going to get a bunch of preschool kids to just sit down and breathe or sit down and meditate. You got to get some movement going. Um, one trick that we use with pre-K kids is like uh, breathing buddies. Uh, where you get their favorite toy or stuffed animal, you get them to lay on their stomach. I mean, lay on their back so they can see their stomach, and they put the breathing buddy on their belly. So then when they say, you know, when you breathe in, your breathing buddy goes up. When you breathe out, your breathing buddy goes down, uh, just to get them to use their um, their diaphragm when they're breathing and take long, slow, deep breaths. But the movement's key with the younger ones. Okay. Developmentally, um, developmentally also, um, our young ones learn by co-regulating with an adult. So this goes again to that need for you to have your own practice to be able to model that um, with the student um, 
but they absolutely learn uh, by watching uh, and co-regulating with an adult before they're able actually to self-regulate. It's a perfect time to start. Thank you. The next question is regarding spaces that we talked about um, not being punishment. I know um, we hit on this a little bit, but maybe share just a little bit more about how the mind, how, how we ensure that our mindful spaces in um, a K-12 setting, how these are not areas for punishment and we don't want our students to be sent there as a sense of punishment. Uh, I think one of the things that we did, we did a lot of like of inviting people, students, like student groups to the room, um, like the ROTC team would get an invite, uh, the athletic teams, um, the high achievers in the school that were stressed out, they might have like um, that achievement anxiety, like I might not get in the right college, I'm not going to get an A on this exam or, you know what I mean, like whatever, but we made sure that we were very inviting. Um, we did a lot of push-ins into the classroom to let the, let the students know what the room was about, what the practice were about. Um, and, uh, you know, like Dr. Mueller said, let them know about the research. You know what I mean? Like people, people love knowing, um, some people are, are totally sold on the experiential aspect of it, but if you let people know about research and neuroscience as well, you're going to draw more people in. So I think it was just, um, giving the right information and, and just dividing people in and making sure everyone knew what it was for. On that, on that same level of questioning, I'm going to combine two questions just because I'm looking at time and there, there's so many and they're so good. Um, is there something we could add about maybe multiple um, students needing a space um, and how they um, can share space without interrupting each other? And or um, if you could talk uh, briefly or if you have ideas regarding um, an online platform, if there can be something that we could address um, with our with our meditation practice uh, with an online platform. Uh, just two quick things. I mean, most of the, most of the time, there's more than one student in the mindful moment rooms. Um, I think it's just um, the students knowing what the the protocol is. So, like, we'll have like stations set up with a meditation cushion or two, um, uh, like for a small group or one on one, where the kids know they come in. They sit down. Um, if a student's in distress, our our, student, our staff will run, go over to them right right away. Um, but if they can like kind of start to sit down and do some breathing until our staff can shift from one student to the next, um, then you know that works. That work. I mean, it works because there's hardly ever one student in the room. Um, and what was the second part of the question? Um, yes, if there was any ideas for an online platform. Oh, so. No, we, we have an online platform. It's called BAM, Bridging Academics in the Mind. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a great tool. It's like animations of Atman Andy and I teaching uh, practices. Um, and then combinations that go for certain um, times of day that might be like um, my classroom. This is a transition period. My classroom is bouncing off the walls. What do I need to do? Um, it's um, all my students are stressed out because we're doing standardized testing. What do I need to do? And it's just a playlist of what they do. Um, we wanted to make it in a way that um, we weren't throwing more on teachers' plates and the, the practice could be taught with fidelity. Uh, so it's just, it's an easy platform. Like I said, bridging academics in the mind. Uh, you can go to the HLF website and find it, but it's a, it's a really, really strong. And we actually just had a study done on it. Um, so um, just to show how well it works. Thank you so very much. I'm going to um, 
show a few slides as we end. I want to make sure that you get your QR code for those of you um, that haven't purchased your book yet. We want to make sure you have a discount there. Um, this is Alliance website. Please do visit us, learn more about our um, programs. Here we have our QR code for a 20% discount for visiting us today and joining us. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Dr. Parks. Thank you, Dr. Mueller. Um, such, a, such a pleasure spending time with you today and, and you sharing your expertise and your backgrounds and your research. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.